Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, say endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here he's going to give us uh, Proverbs 3, verse 11, 12. He quotes it and he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you're reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, say later, later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, and here's the instruction for us this morning, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame, it may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled some messages are like a laser it's one single point you hit it with all of your strength this message is more like a shotgun it's going to pattern and little gospel pellets are going to go everywhere and I hope that nobody leaves without getting hit this morning I want to I want to bring you a word literally about what it means to endure with Jesus the Bible speaks so much about endurance and a lot of people don't take time to really study out not only what does the Bible say about endurance, but what does that look like when we are living it? Because you do understand that endurance is a prerequisite for eternal life. You understand that, right? I know that scares some of you. But those that do not endure unto the end are not saved. Now, some people think they lose their salvation because they didn't endure. Other people think that, no, because they are truly saved, they must endure. And if they don't endure, it proves they were never saved. I'm not going to split that hair with you this morning. This is what I'm going to tell you, though. We, as followers of Jesus, are called to endure. We're called to persevere. We're called to finish well. And the very fact that it's not only taught in Scripture but commanded in Scripture leaves us with the understanding that there's going to be something that we have to endure. 
There's going to be opposition. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be strife. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be heartbreak. There's going to be disillusionment. There's going to be confusion. There's going to be warfare. And although we use terms all throughout our Christian lives and we gather in our little Sunday holy huddles sometimes and the preacher or the teacher will give his or her opinion on, on, on something, the, the, the thing that I'm learning is that we're not slowing down a lot to think about what we actually believe. And we've got to get to the place, especially in this area of endurance, that, that we are thinking about it because here's, here's the, the premise for what I'm going to share with you today. The journey ahead is harder than the journey behind us. The end of the age, as we approach the end of the age, is going to get harder. It's going to get more intense. When we read the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, and you see the cataclysms that are going to find this planet, and you understand that those, are, those don't just happen overnight, that there's a building towards those things. It is the birth pangs that lead to the birth. And, and, and I don't know that we're fully prepared for that. Matter of fact, I'd risk it. At the risk of discouraging you or disappointing you or even offending you, I'm going to tell you the big C church in the West, specifically in America, is not ready for what's coming. And it's passages like this that God uses to refresh us and awaken us again that we were enlisted in a war when we came to Jesus Christ. So are you encouraged yet? Well, let's figure out how we respond to these realities. And let's just start in the first two verses. Let's just get as generic as we can. Let's talk about what is enduring life's difficulties. What is that? What is it? Well, first of all, when the writer of Hebrews is wanting to encourage us and exhort us towards a healthy, strong, Christ-honoring finish, he gives us something to remember. He wants to motivate it. And he says, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, I don't have time to preach chapter number 11, but in chapter number 11, the writer of Hebrews gives name after name after name after name from our Old Testament, and he's reminding us to consider their walk, to consider what they endured, to consider how they were treated, to consider what they lost, to consider the persecution that found them. And now he brings that reality into the context. The metaphor is that we are competing in some kind of games, and he's going to give the metaphor of a race, a long-distance race. And he pictures that great cloud of witnesses that are in Hebrews 11 as being part of the onlooking crowd, those that have run their race, those that have won their race, those that have gone on before us. And now he's saying, I want you to remember that they also know what it meant to endure. They knew what it meant to be opposed. They knew what it meant to suffer. They knew what it meant to have to overcome. Again, you can't be an overcomer unless you are first an undergoer. And we like to talk about overcoming, but we sometimes don't remember. In order to overcome, you're going to have to undergo, and they underwent so much. And now he's saying they have overcome, and I want you to know they are in this sense that he paints the picture. They're in the crowd looking at you. And so he wants us to remember all of those that have gone on before us. But this is what he begins to instruct us to do. He says, as we consider them and how they ran their race and how they endured and how they overcome, let's respond to that reality by doing what? Well, he says, let's lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Now, I'm going to encourage you with something. Be glad that you weren't a witness of the Isthmian Games or the Olympic Games 2,000 years ago. You know why? When they ran, they ran naked. No joke. Don't know why, but they did. 
And the point, I guess, was they want to be as free and as unencumbered as possible. And this is what the writer is referring to there. He's saying in that metaphor, take off that thing which hinders you from running your race. Nobody would go out and try to run the 200 meters with ankle weights on. He says, take off the things that hold you down. Take off the things that weigh you down, that hold you back. And then he gets specific and he says, quite obviously, and cast the sin off of you. In other words, if we're going to endure and we're going to finish our race, he's like, we're not playing around with this thing. There's a prize. There's a finish line. There's a judge at the end of the race. Take off anything and everything that is holding you back. Now, I'm not going to go into a long list of sins that might be represented here that uh, we might struggle with from time to time. Why, let the Holy Spirit be the inner preacher to you. You know where he's working on in you, and the truth of the matter is there may be things that you are uh, susceptible to that the person next to you isn't. There may be sp specific areas of temptation where you are weak, and you need to be doubly guarding those areas because it's a place that the enemy will revisit time and time again. Why? Because he doesn't want you winning your race because if you win your race, you're going to bring glory to the one he hates. And so he fights you. And so the writer of Hebrews says, as the athletic runner would never run with anything hindering his body from running, winning the physical race, then get rid of the weights on your life. By the way, the weights aren't necessarily sins. Y'all know this. You've heard this preached. The sins and the weights are, can be distinct from each other. The weights are things that might be lawful but not profitable. They might be a relationship. They might be uh, a leisurely habit. They might be your forms of entertainment. They might be um, just the way you spend your time. And what he's doing is saying, I want you to think about how you're going to endure until the end. How will you finish your race as the runner that God has appointed you to be? And then he starts hitting where I want to go. He says at the end, at the beginning of verse 2, and then he says, and let us run with endurance. It's not a sprint. The, the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith this is where the instruction is. I want you to make this about you I give you permission today to make this passage of scripture all about you in this moment so I would read it this way and let and let you Jeff run with endurance the race that is set before you Jeff Jeff, keep looking to Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's the pioneer. He's the trailblazer. He went before you. Keep your eyes on him. So the first two verses paint this picture, that we're in the midst of the race. You're not in the starting gate. And you're not at the finish line. You're running your race right now. And you're running it before a bunch of other people, people listed in Hebrews 11 and multiple millions of others that aren't listed in Hebrews 11, but they've run their race, they finished, they stood before the Lord, and now their race is complete, and they're watching us. It's very interesting. The picture is they're witnessing us, they're observing us, they're watching us watch Jesus because we're to be looking unto him. Do you know why most people don't endure? Because they stop looking at Jesus. They start looking at the church with all of her wrinkles, spots, and blemishes, all of her imperfections. The, the world-renowned, infamous hypocrisy that's in the church. I get that. I get it. It's there. By the way, hypocrisy is also at the grocery store. So if you quit going to church because of hypocrisy, don't go shopping, don't go to the mall, don't go to work, don't go to the bank, don't go anywhere. Because hypocrisy is everywhere. But the people get their eyes off of Jesus. They stop looking at him. They start looking to the leaders or the preachers or the, they look to their parents. or they look to, And when they do, they're not looking at Jesus. So they're, they're looking at people without the filter of Jesus in front of them. And they get discouraged and they don't endure. 
They get sidelined. They get tripped up. They stumble. They fall. But he's telling me and you, he's like, be proactive. Let us run. You run your race. It's not only proactive, but listen, it's patient. Run it with endurance. That means let's not get impressed with a great 20-meter sprint. Anybody can look like they're on fire for Jesus for a month or two. Think about that. When we've all seen it. If you've been in church for a while, you've seen people come in with the flame of glory on their life, and they're like, ah, and, and then, you know, six months later, they've checked out. What happened to that person? They took their eyes off of Jesus. That's exactly what happened. It can happen a thousand different ways, but the end result is they stopped seeing the one who had inflamed their heart with the love of his, of his kingdom and his glory. And by the way, it says, run the race that is set before us. That means you run your race. Your race isn't going to look like everybody else's race. Your race is not going to have the same course that the Lord puts you on. And that's a, that's a, double, that's a double blessing because, one, you don't have to compare yourself to them and feel inferior if their race is looking glorious and yours is looking more like a grind. And then the other thing is, is, is the other side of the coin, let them run their race and don't diminish the race because it doesn't look as, as high profile or as awesome as yours. So the point being is this, it takes looking at Jesus to know the course that he's appointed you to run. And that's why we are to continue to look at him. So that's, that's like the ABCs of enduring. Remember those that have gone on before you. Lay aside the things that hold you back when walking or running with Jesus Christ. And then make up your mind that you're in it for the long haul. You're not still testing the waters to see if this God thing is going to turn out well for you, are you? Did, did you surrender fully? Did you release everything? Did you die? We're told in Scripture that when we come to Jesus Christ, we die and our life is then hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we will appear with him in glory. But our glory is not now. Our glory is not in this present moment. And if you're living for your glory now, it's going to be tough to endure because God's not like... He's not in the habit of dispensing personal glory to you. He's in the habit of bringing you to that place where you're focusing on his son and he gets all the glory out of your life. So go down to verses uh, two, the end of verse two and three and four. So how, how are we gonna do this? Because I, I can't do this in my strength. There's no way I can do it. I've got to adopt Christ mindset. You've got to adopt Christ mindset. We have this beautiful option or opportunity, availability, called the mind of Christ, the formation of the mind of Jesus Christ being formed to where you're thinking his thoughts, you're feeling what he feels, you're thinking what he thinks, you're doing what he does, you're saying what he says, you're in a rhythm with him, but you have to enter into this thing on purpose. So many people, especially in communities like ours where we prioritize the presence and the movement and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, so many people just want God to give them that zap from heaven, that fabled zap where all of a sudden they're just instantly thinking like Jesus and you can't, you can't substantiate that by scripture. It's, it's a process of dying to the flesh and dying to the world and dying to the enemy and dying to sin at the same simultaneous moment. You're being raised and renewed in Christ. It comes through the written word of God. It comes through literally long times, life, lifetimes of, of prayer, times of fasting. We are an intercessory community. That's not just for a handful of people that are the intercessors in our community. Our whole church and missions base is founded in night and day prayer. Why? Because that's the best place to meet the Lord. 
When we say we want to meet with you, we're putting everything else aside, we get in a place. I know you can meet with them at home. I meet with them in my house. I meet with them in my truck. I meet with them here in the office. We can meet with them everywhere. But there's something distinct when we come together and we're saying, Lord, we seek your face together. Lord, we're longing for your presence. And so we adopt the, um, the mindset of Christ, not, not flippantly, not casually, but for those who say, I want to think like Jesus, and I'm willing to, to pursue him, so to speak, until, I, until that's formed in me. So we, we see how Jesus endured. Think about this. So much of the book of Hebrews portrays Jesus in, in, in various different ways. And here we see him as the son of man. We see Jesus the man. Jesus the human. Yes, he's divine. He's God, 100%. But he's also 100% human. He was a man. And the Bible speaks of him enduring right here. It says that for the joy that was set before Jesus. And we're going to find out what he endured in a moment, but I like starting with the motivation. How did Jesus Christ endure everything he did? And don't just flash forward to, you know, the, the, the day of his crucifixion. Think about 30 years as God the Son on planet Earth and living in anonymity as, as the Son of Man, as just a man. Nobody was amazed at Jesus. There were a couple of recorded instances one when he was 12 years old and he astounded the Pharisees and the scribes with his understanding of the scriptures. That's it for the rest of his uh, life before 30 years old. It's anonymity, it's obscurity. Nobody knew his name. There was no glory. I mean, when the incarnation happened, you get a couple of blue-collar shepherds that showed up, and then a little while later, some pagan soothsayers that showed up, and that's it. Some angels made an appearance, but for all intents and purposes, Israel, whom he came to save and deliver, they yawned. They didn't even know he was there. Anonymity. He was, he was literally keeping the timeline of the Father, having all of the inherent power as God, and yet not being released to use it for 30 years. Some of you are like, man, it's been four months. Ain't nobody called me to preach. Ain't nobody giving me a platform. How come I'm not singing on the worship team and all that? 30 years. Moses waited 80. I can keep going. There's a lot of counts in there. But here's the thing. It was for the joy that was set before Jesus. That's his motivation. What was the joy that motivated Jesus to endure the anonymity, to endure the, uh, to endure the obscurity? What was it that motivated him to endure the rejection, the betrayal, the blaspheming, the arrest, the spit, the shredding of his body? What, it, what, what caused him to be able to endure in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Lord, take this cup from me if it be your will, but Lord, if it's not your will, then let your will be done. What caused him to endure those things? He did not endure those things in some token divine power. He went through those things as the Son of Man. To say that the Garden of Gethsemane or the cross where he cried out, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't give those a little token nod. Well, that's, yeah, that was just a fulfilled scripture. Jesus was God. No, he suffered as man. He suffered. The divine, holy, sacrificial Lamb of God endured as a human all of the things that we would feel if we were betrayed, if we were spat upon. But why did he do it? He's, he, he always, like we keep our eyes on him, he always kept his eyes on the Father. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. 
Jesus' joy was to fulfill the will of his Father and then to return to his rightful place of glory. That's what motivated the Son of God. I would say that as a side note, the other part would be that he would gain a bride. That would be part of the joy too. So here's some encouragement in the midst of a very challenging message. Some encouragement is that if you're saved and you're part of the bride of Christ, you're part of the joy that motivated him to do everything that he did as far as laying down his life for the sins of those who would believe. Um, if we are going to endure, friends, you can't get myopic. You can't get lost in what's happening 12 inches in front of your face. You can't get saturated with all of the bad news of the world. I don't care how any of us vote in the room this morning. We're all discouraged politically. If, if you're encouraged politically right now in the United States of America, you're probably not aware of the entire spectrum. You're probably focused on one or two things. Politics is terrible. International affairs is awful. You've got the, the dictator in North Korea firing off missiles. You know at some point he's going to want to fire off a real one. That stuff's actually out there. And then you've got, of course, the, the constant barrage of attacks on Israel. You've got economic issues, global issues, China. You've got Venezuela. You've got all of these cataclysmic precursors. And so what it does is it lends itself to us feeling a little fretful on the inside. So what do we need to do? Looking unto Jesus and the joy that is set before us. You see, the danger is you forget the end of your story as a redeemed person. You forget that there is an off-ramp to all of this mess down here. But until that off-ramp comes, until the kingdom is established, friends, I want to remind all of us that we got enlisted. Yes, we got birthed twice, second birth into a family, but we also got enlisted into an army. And so there is a fight for this. Cynthia, I'm glad you're with me this morning because I'm not sure anybody else is. What did he do? What did his fixation on fulfilling the will of the Father and returning to his place of glory, what, 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 what did that enable him to do? It enabled the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, to endure an excruciating process right there in verse 2. He endured the cross and he despised the shame. Don't miss that. He endured the cross. That doesn't, sometimes I think we're just so discompassionate towards the Lord. He hated the shame. He actually had something that he had to press through. He hated the mocking of the high priest. He hated the spit and the beatings of the soldiers. He hated being hung there as a naked spectacle, beaten beyond the appearance of humankind. He hated all of that, but he endured all of that. Why? Because his, his, his mission, his assignment, was to complete the will of the Father. And so that motivated him. He always had the big picture in mind. Therefore, he could endure the chapters, the hard chapters, the painful chapters, the most unjust chapters anywhere written in anybody's story, he endured them because he knew the end of the story, which was a return to glory. Verses 3 and 4, and here we go. Listen. Consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you don't grow weary and faint-hearted. Now you're seeing why I've taken my time with this. The, the way that we do not grow weary and faint-hearted is by considering Jesus. Yes, we're aware of the great cloud of witnesses, and that's good motivation. But that's nothing when we get fixated on Jesus and we're literally told to consider him, to think on him. 
We took communion last Sunday night in this room, and the whole communion service was very simple. It's the purpose of every communion service. What do we do? We don't spice it up. We don't, we don't try to make it neon. What do we do? We take a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice, and we stop everything. We say, we're going to think about you, Jesus. And so we center ourselves in him. But here's the thing. Communion is awesome to do that. But we're called to do that with our daily lives. We are to consider him and what he endured and from our Lord and what they've done to the master, they'll do to the servant. And so we consider it. We make up our mind ahead of time that we should expect similarly. And that's where we lose most of the Western church. Most of the Western church wants triumphalism. They want, that. just skip to the victory, man. Give, give me some victory stuff. Do you, do you realize the victory will never happen if we're not prepared for the contest that leads to the victory? And so we've got to be realistic with each other, and we've got to remember the joy, and we've got to understand that we will endure some things. And the American way has turned into, and even in the American church, has turned into our frantic um, scurrying around, figuring out how can we avoid difficulty? How can we insulate ourselves from cost? How can we keep sacrifice as a theory but not a reality? How can we keep it up in the realm of the cloudy virtues of Christianity but never let it touch our lives? And that's what's happening in the church. And my, my fear, Jesus, just give me liberty this morning. My fear is that when real trouble hits, and it's going to, it is going to hit the American church. I can feel like the... the, the the detachment from that it's going to hit the american church and when it does when the flames of governmental and cultural persecution hits the church who's going to endure everybody that will look to jesus consider jesus and follow jesus if we are doing that now we will be prepared then when this comes so what is he doing? Because you know it's not within my flesh or your flesh to, to really give ourselves to this kind of uh, truth. This, this can't be done in the flesh. It can't even be done by determination. It can't just be, okay, bless God, I'm going to grind my teeth, clench my fist, I'm going to make it through this. Because our willpower, though it may be sincere, it's insufficient. We have to do this in the operation of the power of Jesus Christ specifically through the Holy Spirit who lives within us. That's why we're told, go ahead now in the easy part of the race and cast off the weights. Go ahead today when the price is at its lowest and repent of the sin that might be in your life because you can't run your assigned race with those things holding you down. But there are times where you and I don't cooperate with that. And this is where I get to tell you about uh, an unpopular aspect of our glorious Heavenly Father and His love for us. He is, as we've sung ad nauseum, a good, good father. I'd just like to thank the worship community for not singing that song in the last six months. It was great. The first 280 times I heard it and sang it, it was great. But reality is, is despite that song getting overplayed, the, the reality is he is. He's, he's an immeasurably good father. And let me tell you a kind of an unpopular aspect of, of good fathers. They discipline their kids. And that's where the writer of Hebrews brings us in. He brings us into this. Because some of you right now, I'm going to help some people right now. If you've tuned out the whole time, tune in right here. Let's embrace God's discipline. And I'm going to tell you, when we hear discipline, we almost always think of what? 
Correction or punishment, right? Yeah? Somebody please talk to me. This is getting loud. Thank you, thank you. You actually get to participate a little bit. So it's not just correction. It's not just punishment. It's never wrath. The father never pours his wrath out on his children. Although he will wear you out, but it's not done in wrath. It's done in love. But that's not the only form of discipline. Sometimes discipline is for correction, but sometimes it's for prevention. It means he's preventing us through strong actions or forbidding us to move any further. He's preventing us from going in the way that we're going because he knows something about what's out there that we don't know. But sometimes even when he's preventing us, we start wondering, what am I doing wrong? He's mad at me, something's going wrong. No, no, sometimes he's disciplining you through prevention. And sometimes it's neither prevention or correction, it's education. He's just teaching you something. He's just trying to teach you something really intense and really important so he just separates you from everything else in life until you get this lesson. So let's see what the, the, the passage says about it. Look in verse number five, you've still got your Bibles open. The writer says this, when we're talking about embracing God's discipline, he says, have you forgotten the exhortation? And again, this is from Proverbs 3, verse 11 to 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here it is. My son, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So many in the room have raised children. Some of you are in the process of it, and all of us have some things we probably think we did well. I've got some things uh, that I also think I could have done better. But one of the things Amy and I dialogued about and, and, and decided very early on, this will freak some of you out probably because for various reasons, but we actually did this crazy thing with our kids called spanking. <laughs> Don't call defects on me because it worked, amen? We... We, we actually, but we spanked them early so we didn't have to spank them often. And so what was that? It's not that I had a bad day at work, where's a kid? You know, just give, give me a kid. It's not that, it's, it's, it's correction. And sometimes it was prevention. And sometimes it was instruction. So when we're talking about this aspect of discipline, this is what the writer of Hebrews wants us to know. When we're enduring Sometimes the way that God builds endurance in us is through his disciplining of us. And that means he doesn't give us what we desire. He doesn't do it either what we want or when we want it. Sometimes he removes things from us, not because he's a big old unpredictable, scary takeaway God, but because whatever he removes, he knows is not consistent with what he wants to give us and bless us through. So he's God, he's sovereign, he's the Lord, he gets to choose what happens, we get to choose how we respond to it. And so what the, what the writer is saying here, because a lot of the, his audience, his original audience, they were suffering. They started out on fire, they had met the Messiah, remember it's written to Hebrews, so these are dispersed Jewish believers. They had recognized Yeshua as the Messiah, they've received Jesus Christ as Lord, their sins are forgiven, they found a community of believers called the church and things are going great and then suddenly some of their marriages are getting impacted because their spouse isn't a believer. Uh, some of their parents are... are, are abdicating their their roles in their children's life because these 15 16 17 year olds are getting saved and their parents are not receiving jesus some of them would have lost their businesses they would have lost their income many lost their homes and of course we all know that eventually many would lose their very lives 
So they're dealing with a high level of loss, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, look to Jesus. Amen. Keep looking to Jesus. Consider him. Consider him. And so when, when we see that, we, we get sobered on this, and then he adds this thing about God's discipline. He's like, the Father's not allowing these things because he's upset with you. The Father's not allowing these things because he's abandoned you. It may not even be that the Father is correcting you or punishing you, but the Lord operates in discipline with every son or daughter that he has because that's the way a father shows love. Um, a parent that never disciplines doesn't love properly. I'm not saying that that parent doesn't have fondness and, and want good things for their kids, but I'm going to tell you, a parent who refuses to discipline has a, has a non-biblical approach to love. Love isn't all discipline, but it's not absent of discipline either. And so when we look at verses 7 and 8, this is the faithfulness of God's discipline. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Some of you, I'm gonna, let me just, let me roll a flow for a minute here. Some of you right now are in a frustrating, confusing season of life. You're doing what you know to do. You're being who you need to be. You feel like you're trying to honor the Lord and no breakthrough's coming. No fruit is coming. It feels like a cul-de-sac after a cul-de-sac after a cul-de-sac. And you're saying, why is this going on? And then the enemy sneaks up and he wants to whisper all the sins you've committed since 1991. And he's, he's accusing you. And so you think it's because I did this. I think I did this. And, and, and all of a sudden, you're singing like uh, minor chords with, with the enemy over your life because you're thinking God's against you. But that's not what we're reading here. It's that this, he's treating you as a son or a daughter. He's actually making you into the man or the woman that you're supposed to be as he sees you. And he's doing it not through a constant gush of sugary affirmation, which is the blight on the church right now, by the way. I'm just going to preach. I'm going I'm to, Jeff, that was good. Amen. Amen, Jeff. I'm high-fiving myself. Okay. No, I'm serious. It's like, that, that's why I'm so concerned about the, the majority of the messaging coming out from the, the Western church. It's because it's so syrupy. It's so sugary. It's granulated. It's cotton candy. It's rock candy. Even if it's hard, it's still sweet. And so... As some, somebody once quipped, we're, we're, all the sugary stuff in the, from the pulpits, we're suffering from truth decay. Amen? That's what it feels like. Because why? Because sometimes love comes through discipline. Sometimes it's a hard word from the Lord to you. And sometimes it's God saying no. You know, David, the man after God's own heart, I want to build a house for the Lord. I'm going to build this. This is awesome. I'm going to build you a house because you're glorious. I shouldn't have my own house if you don't have your house, Lord. I got all this abundance of wealth. I'm going to build you a house. And the prophet comes in and says, do whatever's in your heart. And then the prophet goes home and God gets the prophet and says, the prophet, why'd you tell him that? I don't want him to build me a house. So the prophet comes back and he says, God says no, David. God says no. To his credit, David took that humbly, but a lot of us can't, we can't ever recover when God told us no on something. A part of that is discipline. And so we, 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 we find here, um, some of you in the body of Christ, you're gifted, you're equipped, you're anointed, you're effective, you're fruitful, you know what you're supposed to do, you're begging for opportunities to do it in a way that has a broader reach and a greater potential harvest. And God's not giving you that right now. Do you know why? He wants to know, not him because he doesn't know, he wants you to know whether you'll rejoice in him as much when it's this big 
as you would when it's this big. Uh, it may have been Spurgeon, it may have been Lloyd-Jones that said one of the worst things to happen to a person is for them to succeed before they're ready. And some of you are just, you're, you're just, you're so gifted that he's putting a regulator on you because you have so much strength. And he's like, oh, my daughter, you're too strong. You're too strong. My son, you're too gifted. And that translates into us trusting in our strength and our giftedness more than it translates into us looking unto him and enduring. So let me get through the end of this. Um, I'm just going to go down to verses 12 through 15. Verses 9 and 11 are awesome, but I don't have time for them. Um, actually, I do have time for verse 10 because that's important. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That we may share his holiness. That we may share his holiness. Um, I believe that I have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That means my standing before God is as secure as Jesus's standing before God because I have the righteousness of Christ. If, if it was partly dependent on me, I would be damned because there's nothing that I bring to the table. It has to be perfect righteousness. That's why you can't save yourself. That's why you can't outdo all your bad stuff. Even if you live from today through the rest of your life and never sinned again, you'd still have the issue of your past. You see, we, we can only stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus. So I have imputed holiness. That means by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ, when the Father looks at me, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Therefore, I am accepted by the Father through the sacrifice of the Son. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. The writer of Hebrews is talking about how do I actually live out my holy standing before God? It is unreasonable for anyone to think that they can have a holy standing before God and yet a careless attitude about holiness in this life. <laughs> this is getting more unpopular by the moment. <laughs> Y'all know I don't care, right? I mean, I want this for you, but I'm going to preach this either way. But I, I, I really, I, I'm, I'm just feeling this. I'm concerned. I'm finally old enough. I'm, hallelujah. I'm finally old enough to say stuff like, these kids today... This younger generation. <laughs> but the reality is I am. I'm concerned about it. I'm concerned about how somebody can lift their hands on a Sunday morning and give glory to God after they got drunk on Saturday night. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about how somebody can teach a small group or lead a house church when they slept around the week before. I'm concerned how you can get stoned on Wednesday and then show up for praise team practice on Thursday. Say, Jeff, what's going on in this church? These are all hypothetical. As far as I know, they're all hypothetical. So I'm speaking broadly, but my point being is that these scriptures say this, without holiness, nobody sees God. And so if we're just saying, okay, it doesn't matter how we live, then we're actually defying the scriptures. And if we don't warn that, hey, if you're actually living in a constant state or a consistent state of unbroken holiness, you actually have a really uh, good reason to be concerned over your soul. So the writer of Hebrews says, yeah, God will discipline that. And what he actually says is this, if you're not disciplined, when you know you have sin in your life. I'm, this is where I'm glad I'm not using the King James because it uses a very strong word there. We'll just use the translation here from the ESV. You're not legitimate sons. If you're not chastised for your sin, that's because you ain't God's kid. And so that's another one of those things that we look at and we're like, good night alive. 
So here we are. I'm about to sum all of this up. I'm concerned for the church today because the strongest opposition of, against the church is still future. And, and I'm not talking about you necessarily or me necessarily, but I'm saying a thousand-foot view. When I look at the church, we're not doing awesome at this low level of opposition. And a higher, much more intense level of opposition is coming where literally all of hell will break loose. Who's going to endure? I'm, I'm concerned about the church because we are good at services. When we, we come in, it's, we're, we're tanked, we're, we're, yeah, I mean, we're getting our worship on, we're getting our groove on, and we're feeling it, man, and then we go out and we live unholy lives. I'm concerned for the church because we, we'd rather do our Christian life via podcast and a book at home than actually entering into koinonia and community with others. I'm concerned for the church because we want new rims on our truck, but we don't want to help the missionary in Zimbabwe. I'm concerned for the church because we sing and write worship songs, and then instead of getting filled with the Spirit, we get drunk with wine. I'm concerned, man. And my thought is this. Until we're all concerned about it, our messaging across the Big C American church might continue to be, it's all good. So, hey, simmer down, crazy preacher. Just tone it down, radical reverend. We just, just, hey, come on, man, relax. I've been having people tell me relax since I started preaching 25 years ago. And if there's ever a time not to relax, it's now. It's now. I got one minute, I'm taking three, last three verses. So I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to end with a little bit of encouragement for you because I haven't given you any yet. 44 minutes of confrontation, three minutes of encouragement. Listen, this is how you overcome personal discouragement. Verses 12 and 13. L listen to what we're told to do when we recognize that there's an urgency and there's a discipline on this thing called the Christian life. Listen, when, when, when it turns out not to be the party, when the cotton candy is taken away and somebody gives you cabbage, when, when the illusions are taken away, this is what he says, therefore lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. We're back to the race metaphor. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What is he saying? He's saying you're still running your race, so get your act together. That's what he's saying. He's actually exhorting us. He said earlier, for those that might feel self-pitying and you know, feeling sorry for themselves and calling 1-800-Flowers and sending yourself a mournful bouquet three times a week, he says, you've not resisted yet under the shedding of blood. He says, consider Jesus. He says, you, you haven't gone where he's gone yet. I would, I would say it this way. Hey, quit feeling sorry for yourself. I don't see any bodies laying around here. We're pressing in. We're not victims. Listen, we are overcomers. We're being challenged. It's going to get more intense. Are you ready? If you're not ready, don't fake it. Get low. 
If, if you're not ready, listen, it's time to put on your sackcloth and your ashes in the spirit. It's time to get low. It may time, be time to turn off the, the uh, EDM music in, 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 the, in the church and turn up some dirges for a moment just so we can beat our chest and say, God, be merciful me. I've looked for my comfort in the world. I've looked for my comfort emotionally. I've, I've, I've looked for ease. I've looked for insulation. I've looked for prosperity. I've looked for health, wealth, and happy smiles and clear skin and bright teeth and a full head of hair. Lord, I've wanted everything that I thought the, that Christianity was because I've stopped looking at Jesus. And so he says, get back in the race. Strengthen your hands and lift your hands. Strengthen your feet and your knees and Get back on the straight paths. And then he says this, get low. Strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. That doesn't mean that peace at any price. It doesn't mean that we sacrifice truth. But it does mean this, quit being factious. Quit being divisive. He's talking to believers. When all of hell breaks loose against the church, I'm just going to have you stand because that's the only way I'll quit preaching. Just stand to your feet. When, when all, literally, when it comes... And there's going to be a moment where every single believer is going to stop asking, is this it? We're going to know. And when that comes, uh, we're not going to be saying, Do you, hey, listen, I, I know all of the enemies coming against us and all hell is breaking loose and the culture hates us and the government's shutting down our churches, but I need to ask you something. Uh, do you speak in tongues? Because if you speak in tongues, I can't hang with you. Do you, do you baptize by immersion or do you sprinkle? Because if you sprinkle, oh, I'm, I, I just can't roll that way. Uh, what translation of the scriptures are you using? Because I'm, an, I'm a KJV guy, and if you're NIV, you run that way, I run that way. You know, those are silly things, but they're, they're only silly to those who've never lived in that atmosphere, and that's the atmosphere I once lived in. Strive for peace with everyone. Friends, listen, we need one another. Yeah. This is the same book and the same writer who said, don't forsake assembling with one another. That's not just about going to church on Sunday. That means be the family, be the community. When we asked Blue and Heather to stand up, who we are uh, planting a different church along with, with the Sanders in a different area, their family. When we look at my friend Vincent Campbell, his church is 99.9% .9 African-American. We might be 70% white. We're all family. What, 12 stone next door, they're Wesleyan, we're whatever. Family. <laughs> family. Hebron Baptist, family. Gwinnett Hall Baptist, Crossroads Baptist, family. Reveal Church, family. The church right now in Isiolo, family. All over the globe, family. And this is the point. We're running a race together. Lift up your drooping shoulders. Put your eyes back on Jesus. Run the race that he's assigned to you. There's a finish line, and we want to finish well. Let's pray. Lord, let it just get in our veins. Let it get in our veins. Forgive us for our self-absorption at times. Forgive us for our self-pity at other times. Jesus, we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Here's our hearts. Take and seal them. Seal them for your courts above. Make us uni-focused on you, Jesus. Let us stare at you. Let us behold your glory. Let us recognize the immensity of who you are. Deepen our gratitude for what you've done. Make us holy people, Lord. 
Purge my heart of unholiness. Attitudes, thoughts, actions, words. Purge me and purge this community of unholy compromise. God, we want to be vessels that can steward revival. So we say yes as much as within us, Lord. We say yes, but we know, Lord, as a loving Father, you'll bring the discipline that we need. Help us to not regard it lightly. Help us not to despise it. In Jesus' name, amen.